Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. We're continuing our study on a closer look at 12 ordinary men. Now, the last time we were together, I'm going to pick up right where we left off, actually. And we were talking about the fact that there was this wonderful man by the name of Tyndall, who actually took upon himself to have the Holy Scriptures actually translated into English. Because during the time that he lived, um, he found that so many of the people did not even understand what the Bible was saying because it wasn't in the language that they you know, could understand. Um, so he did that, and I really, think that all of us, to a certain degree, should be somewhat very grateful to Mr. Tyndale for doing it. Now, you can still get Tyndale Bibles all over the place. I mean, you can still find that. Um, the thing that's most interesting, which shows us that you know, even back during that time, uh, the enemy was still trying to rear his head and do all kinds of things, how was Mr. Tyndall actually rewarded for all that he did by having the Bible translated. Well, he was exiled, and he ended up living in poverty, and he was persecuted for what it was that he did. And finally, in 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake. And for us, I always look back and say, oh my goodness, look at what some of the people before us had to go through. You know, we talk about persecution as believers now, and we think the biggest persecution we go through is we come into church and sister so-and-so doesn't smile at us and we feel like we're being persecuted. Or we didn't get to sit in our favorite seat because the ushers asked us to move. Oh, what persecution we're going through. Whereas people like Mr. Tyndall actually was strangled and burned at the stake. That, to me, is true persecution. So it gives us something to really think about. Um, and one of the other things that I thought was very interesting, we talked about this a little bit before, was that uh, Mr. Tyndall also knew that if he asked some of the clergy at that time, um, and even though they had the translations and stuff available to them, if he asked them to even name the 12 apostles, they fell short in knowing who all 12 of them were. Now, what's even more interesting is that was back in the 1500s. Well, here we are in 2019, and I'm telling you now, we could go about all different kinds of churches. It does not matter what the denomination is or if it's a non-denominational church, or you can ask the average Christian, and they would not be able to tell you who all of the 12 apostles were. And we have how many translations of the Bible, okay? And that's something we need to even check ourselves on because I bet you some of us, when we first started this, we all thought that there was only one Judas we just we knew it was Judas Iscariot, but we didn't know that in the twelve there were more than one that there was more than one Judas. We just all knew Judas Iscariot. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. We didn't know that one of the other twelve that his name too was Judas. So when you start to think about it, it kind of makes us go, hmm, there's a lot we probably don't know. And we really need to be encouraged, which is why you're here, because you are doing something about it, which I think is very, very good. Um, the other thing that was very interesting, I thought, that we covered about the 12 ordinary men is that we already know none of them had any kind of special ability, no special talents. There was nothing outstanding about them. But they were also from Galilee. Now, I kind of like that little tidbit 
because if you were from Galilee, you were not considered to be elite in any way, shape, or form, because Galileans were considered to be low class, rural, uneducated people. Now, if we stop and think, all of us may not necessarily come from upper crust society, as this world would put it. We may come from a place that's not necessarily considered upper class. It might be what would be considered low class. Like for instance, where I live, it's actually known as an Italian ghetto. Now, it's a long story behind that. It's an Italian ghetto. We have, in the terms in which we live nowadays, when we say ghetto, we automatically usually think of something that's terribly negative, like, oh, the hood, or you know, the ghetto. Ghetto is just a, a term of saying it's a cluster of this type of people. Okay, so you know, you could live in an upper crust ghetto, so to speak, or a rich ghetto. Um, I live in an Italian ghetto because the particular part of the island that I live on, if you were, I believe it was a World War II veteran and you were of Italian descent, you could get acreage for about $100. So therefore, a whole lot of people moved to that area that were of that descent because obviously they could get land and they could get it cheap. Well, I'm not Italian, so I didn't get that break. But it just so happened that I moved out there when nobody else was moving out there. So it's kind of like in the boonies still, which is why all of you can't come to my house because it's so far away. But in any event, okay, the people from Galilee, their ghetto or their hood or their neighborhood was considered to be low class and nothing special. So in addition to these apostles, not having anything special about them. They also came from an area where there was nothing special about the area. Um, they were just commoners. Some people actually called the people who lived there nobodies. <laughs> However, they were not selected because they had anything distinguishable about them or more talented than any of the other people in Israel. It was almost the total opposite is why they were actually selected. Now, there has to be some rather clear, and we talked about this, we just touched on it. There had to be something. It's like, okay, they're totally ordinary. They're coming from an area of nobodies. Why did he still pick them? Okay, there had to be something special about these men. I mean, something, wouldn't you think? Well, there had to be some clear moral and spiritual qualifications that they had to meet. Something about these men had to be there that was moral, or spiritual for them to in any way, shape, or form have any kind of leadership role in the church. I mean, if they didn't have any special talents, they came from an area of nobodies, but now we're gonna make them leaders of the church? Really? There had to be something about them. They had to have some qualification. I mean, wouldn't you think that? That just makes common sense. We don't even have to be real spiritual to figure that out. So turn with me to 1 Timothy. And we're going to take a look at it. Because in fact, the standard for spiritual leadership in the church was and still is extremely high. We don't always see that, but it is, according to the word. So go to 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. And I'm going to share it with you out of two different translations. The first one is the Amplified. And let me know if you're there by saying amen. Okay, so out of the Amplified it says, now an overseer must be blameless and beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, 
able to teach, not addicted to wine, not a bully, nor quick-tempered and hot-headed, but gentle and considerate, free from the love of money, not greedy for wealth and its inherent power, financially ethical, he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, keeping them respectful and well-behaved. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And he must not be a new convert, so he will not behave stupidly and become conceited by appointment to this high office and fall into the same condemnation incurred by the devil for his arrogance and pride. And he must have a good reputation and be well thought of by those outside the church so that he will not be discredited and fall into the devil's trap. So that already lets us know that, again, the devil is sitting there with a trap waiting. Now, if we read this out of the message, it says, if anyone wants to provide leadership in the church, good. But there are preconditions. A leader must be well thought of, committed to his wife, cool and collected, accessible and hospitable. He must know what he's talking about, not be over fond of wine, not pushy, but gentle, not thin-skinned, not money-hungry. He must handle his own affairs well, attentive to his own children and having their respect. For if someone is unable to handle his own affairs, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a new believer, lest the position go to his head and the devil trip him up. Outsiders must think well of him or else the devil will figure out a way to lure him into his trap. Now also, let's look at Titus. You're right over there by Timothy. Turn to Titus, the first chapter, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Now, this is talking about hmm, the elders of the church. So if we look at it in the Amplified, Titus 1, starting with verse 5, it says, For this reason, I left you behind in Crete, so that you could set right what remains unfinished, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, a man of unquestionable integrity, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of being immoral or rebellious. For the overseer, as God's steward, must be blameless, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not violent, not greedy or dis for dishonest gain, but financially ethical. Now, I'm going to pause here. Doesn't this sound almost exactly like what we read before? Okay, so obviously these qualities, <laughs> they mean something. Picking it back up at verse 8. And he must be hospitable to believers as well as strangers, a lover of what is good, sensible, upright, fair, devout, self-discipline, above reproach, whether in public or in private. That is so important. Mm, I'm going to come back to that. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word of God as it was taught to him so that he will be able both to give accurate instruction and sound, reliable, error-free doctrine, and to refute those who contradict it by explaining their error. Now, the words elder, overseer, and bishop are used interchangeably to indicate the spiritually mature men who were qualified and selected to serve as leaders and shepherds over the church. Um, now, you can jot this down, because we're not going to look at all these scriptures. But you can jot down Acts, 
the 20th chapter, verses 17 and 28, 1 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And if you're looking for the word bishop specifically, then look at Titus, the first chapter, verse 7. Okay? Now, the thing that I said I'm going to come back to it is where it says, because this is the qualifier, which is why, again, you know I love the Amplified, where it says how he must be hospitable to believers as well as strangers, but then it says that he has to be above reproach, whether in public or in private. That's very key because you will find, like, okay, <laughs> let's have a little fun with this. All of us are sitting here, and we look so nice. You know, everybody's here, you're dressed, you look nice, clean, scrubbed, everything's wonderful. I think that's wonderful. That does not mean that's how you look first thing in the morning, okay? That's not even how you look when you go to bed at night. Okay, ladies, you know what we have to do. We gotta put on the moisturizer, because if not, we wake up in the morning and we will look like little prunes. So therefore, we may go to bed and we almost look a little greasy, okay, because we got the moisturizer on, we might have our hair tied up, or you know, if you have some hair that uh, is accessible and you may even have a name for her that you put on a little stand, you definitely might have a little something tied up. Okay, so that's not what we see when we see you here. The representation here, all of that stuff is, you know, that's private. That's not what somebody knows. You know, we don't, we don't see all that. And we're not asking to see all of that. We think it's good to see you the way that you are now. But when it comes to the leadership of the church, you don't want people to be one way in front of you when it comes to their moral ethical, spiritual behavior, and then when they're behind closed doors, there's something totally different. Like uh, I tell you, and everybody knows, I grew up in the Baptist church. We had this one deacon who I will not name his name, but my father always told me, you will never get in the car with that man under any circumstances. And I used to think, well, why is he saying that? He was the head of our deacon board. Everybody knew him. Came to church, always dressed so nice, had a cute little wife, nice little family. You thought he was just wonderful. Okay, well, I never understood it, but I was obedient, so I listened. And then one day, I saw this particular deacon hanging out on the corner with what we used to call years ago, now I know I'm dating myself, but for the purpose of this, I will, with the winos. <laughs> I used to stand on the corner around this barrel. I never understood that. So I just thought if you're drinking wine or you're drinking alcohol, maybe that keeps you warm, but they always had like this garbage can with a fire in it. I never understood that. But anyway, I saw this man. I was like, oh my goodness. So my father must have known something. Well, he obviously knew something I didn't know, but the point was, Perfect example of somebody who was leadership in the church, who you would have thought was all stalwart and wonderful. But on Monday or Tuesday, he was hanging out with the winos, and he was not teaching them anything, okay? He was not sharing the word from what I could observe. So anyway, this is making it very clear to us that we definitely want somebody who's going to be how we see them spiritually all of the time. So that's why I gave you that example. Now, if we look at Titus 1, 5 through 9 out of the message, it's a little shorter, and it says it this way. I left you in charge in Crete so you could complete what I left half done. Appoint leaders in every town according to my instructions. As you select them, ask. 
Is this man well thought of? Is he committed to his wife? Are his children believers? Do they respect him and stay out of trouble? It's important that a church leader responsible for the affairs in God's house be looked up to, not pushy, not short-tempered, not a drunk, not a bully, not money-hungry. He must welcome people, be helpful, wise, fair, reverent, have a good grip on himself and have a good grip on the message, knowing how to use the truth to either spur people on in knowledge or stop them in their tracks if they oppose it. That's something that we need to think about and we, we have to, that's why you will hear us say all the time, it's wonderful, Christian TV is a great thing, that's a good thing, that's good, but you must discern what you are hearing because, you know, <laughs> you may turn on one thing and think, yo, these people are just wonderful. You don't know what's happening all the time. You've got to be discerning. You have to be discerning. We don't tell you you can never go visit another church or something. We're not like that. We're all in the body of Christ. It does not matter if it's, you know, this church or that church. We're all one. But you still have to be discerning. And you have to be discerning with who is standing before you sharing something. It's important, but you have to be discerning all the time. You need to be discerning with each other, okay? But for instance, in general, especially here at CCC New York, church leaders must be exemplary, moral and spiritual examples because their faith must be the kind that others can follow. Most importantly, they will be re required to give an account to God. That's what to me is most important on how they conduct themselves. Okay, that's so important. Our own Apostle Price holds the leaders at CCC New York to a very high standard, very high. Leadership, here's the key, and this is what I do really appreciate about CCC New York. It's not just about the people who stand up here, because guess what? All of us have a story to tell. So every single one of you can get up here and do what I do, because you do have a story to tell you are still a minister of the gospel. Now, you may not necessarily have been called to do it, so it might not be something you do all the time, but understand that you do have a story to tell. So therefore, you're held to the same standard. You may not think that you are, but you actually are. You actually should have, well, because you're not always taught, so that's what we're telling you. you the moment you accepted Jesus, as your personal Lord and Savior, and you became a representative of Christ. Once you were born into the kingdom, you were snatched out of darkness and born into the kingdom of his marvelous light with all of the rights and all of the privileges. Along with that came a certain amount of responsibility. People, when they see you, you, shouldn't, you don't have to go around wearing a cross that's you know, three feet by two feet symbolizing that you're a Christian. They should see that in how you conduct yourself and how you come across to people. They should know there's something different about you. You don't have to beat them over the head with scripture. They should be able to see it, which is how you carry yourself. So that's one of the standards. Now, anybody who's in the Ministry of Health, they know <laughs> the morals interview that you must go through to be part of the Ministry of Helps here. It's not some loosey-goosey, loosey you know, everybody can do it. You know, I honestly think some people may not have joined because they might think, oh, join the Ministry of Helps, I mean. 
that, ooh, you know, maybe I do want to be able to go out and drink wine, and maybe I do want to, you know, do some things that Ministry of Health's leaders aren't allowed to do. Because, again, we all do what? We live life on levels, and we arrive in stages. So that's perfectly fine, and you will always hear me say this. God does not expect perfection, but he appreciates progress. But the point is, if you're on the Ministry of Helps at CCC New York, yes, the apostle has set a standard, and he expects that standard to be followed, and there are just some things that we just don't get involved with, and we just don't do. Like, you will not see me go out to a restaurant and have a cocktail. I don't know if I was really going to do it anyway, but I'm just not going to do it. I'm in Ministry of Helps. I don't want anybody to stumble or misunderstand seeing me if, because even, you know, it's funny, because even if you go somewhere and have a mocktail, they don't necessarily know if it's a mocktail or a cocktail. So, you know, you just have to be careful. Just don't bother, you know. You're not going to see the people in Ministry of Helps dressing like some other people that you might see at some churches where they're just, you know, letting the girls just be free. <laughs> I mean, there's just certain things. We're just not going to do that because that's not something that is representative of the kingdom. So I think that that's wonderful that we really are held to that standard. Now, it also, it's not just that apostle is being strict and mean. He's lining up with the word. Turn with me to Hebrews. If we look at Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 13, starting with verse 7, and I'm going to read this out of the New King James Version. It says, Remember those who rule over you, <clears throat> excuse me, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we look at and Actually, what it's saying when it says rule over you, because we're not, you know, this is not over the pond, okay, where we have the queen who's ruling over us. It actually means lead. So the people who are leading you. And all of us, really, all of us who stand before you are in a role of leadership. All of us who are in ministry of helps are in a role of leadership. But guess what? Every single one of you as a Christian is in a role of leadership because you are leading your families, your households, your communities, anybody that you come in contact with, you should be realizing that you are in a role of leadership because you are a representative of the kingdom. Now, if we look at these same verses in the Amplified, again with the qualifiers that I like, it says, starting with verse seven, remember your leaders, here's the qualifier, for it was they who brought you the word of God. And consider the result of their conduct, qualifier, the outcome of their godly lives, and imitate their faith, qualifier, their conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider of eternal salvation through Christ, and imitate their reliance on God with absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. Now that is a serious qualifier. Okay? So much so, I'm going to repeat it. We are supposed to consider the result of their conduct. Whose contact? The leaders, okay, that are bringing us the word of God. Here is the big qualifier that we need to remember and know. 
We're supposed to imitate their faith, but what does that mean? This is what it means. Their conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider of eternal salvation through Christ, and imitate their reliance on God with absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same yesterday and today and forever. The reason why that qualifier is so important is because depending upon what leadership tells you, tells you a lot about them. If you go to a church and they are believing God to raise money because, I don't know, they want flowers for the church or new robes for the choir, and they feel as if chickens have to lose their lives to sell dinners, and they believe that they have to have bazaars and they have to you know, bring in all kinds of goods, you know, like a garage sale or a bazaar to sell it to get the money, is that really their faith being totally in God, or is that them trying to help God out? You need to see, it seems like a little thing, but it's the little foxes that do what? Spoil the vine. So we have to think about it. Now, I'm not knocking people if that's where they're at, but that does not mean that you have to be in that same spot. If anything, maybe share something with them or pray for them so that hopefully they get beyond that and they don't feel as if they have to do that, okay? So it's not that we're judging them, so don't misunderstand me, but just make sure that you don't just feel as if that's the only way that something can be done because we already know that that is definitely not the case. Now, if you were not aware, the standard is no lower, which I've really been saying, for people in the congregation. Leaders are examples for everyone else, but there is no acceptable lower standard for church members. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter. But you know what? Before I do that, yeah, I like this. So I'm going to share this before we go to Matthew because I, I want to share this with you. Hebrews 13, 7 through 8, the one that we just read, I like how the message puts it best, because it's shortened to the point. Appreciate your pastoral leaders. Notice it said pastoral leaders, it didn't say pastor, okay? Appreciate your pastoral leaders who gave you the word of God. Take a good look at the way they live and let their faithfulness instruct you as well as their truthfulness. There should be a consistency that runs through us all. Here's why. For Jesus doesn't change yesterday, today, tomorrow. He is always totally himself. I love that translation. So I had to leave. I had to make sure you heard that. So now you should already be at Matthew 5. And we're going to look at verse 48. Are you there? Matthew 5. Okay, here, one person. Okay, okay. So Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Amplified breaks it down a little bit better. You, therefore, will be perfect. Here's the qualifier. Growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values into your daily life as your heavenly father is perfect. Now remember a couple of weeks ago, or it might have been a couple of weeks the last time we met, 
that one of our brothers asked that question because after reading, uh, <laughs> reading this verse of scripture in the New King James Version where it says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect, his question was, okay, we're supposed to be perfect because that's what this scripture says. This is why I love different translations. And I answered him actually, I think, pretty well by saying that we're supposed to strive for perfection but know that there was only one perfect person who ever walked the earth. Well, this proves it when we look at it in the Amplified because the Amplified breaks down what perfect means. It means growing into spiritual maturity both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values into your daily life as your heavenly father is perfect. So I think that clears it up and breaks it down a little bit more, don't you? Okay, if we look at it in the message, it says it in a word, what I'm saying is grow up, your kingdom subjects, now live like it, live out your God created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. I think that is absolutely beautiful. Now, when you think about it, no one meets the standard of perfection. No one is fit to be in God's kingdom in the natural, and no one is inherently worthy to be in God's service. Before you get up in arms and start saying, where are you coming from with this? Follow what the word states. Turn with me to Romans, the third chapter, and we're gonna look at verses 23 and 24. And I want you to see this. So, starting with the New King James Version, it says, for all have sinned, we all heard this, we all probably know this, for all have sinned and fall short of what? Of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If we read it in the Amplified, it says, since all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God and are being justified, here's the qualifier, declared free of the guilt of sin, made acceptable to God and granted eternal life as a gift by his precious undeserved grace through the redemption the payment for our sin, which is provided in Christ Jesus. Now, when we look at verse 24, which is the last one I just read, his mercy and grace extended to man who can do nothing to be worthy of it. It is simply God's amazing gift. And if we look at it, I don't even think we have to look at it in the message. No, so do me a favor, turn to Romans, you're in Romans, back up to the 10th verse. Stay in the same chapter, Romans 3, back up to verse 10. And it says, in the New King James Version, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. If we look at it in the Amplified, as it is written and forever remains written, there is none righteous, here's the qualifier, None that meets God's standard, not even one. And if we look at it in the Amplified Classic Edition, which is slightly different than the Amplified, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, just and truthful and upright and conscientious. No, not one. So when you think about that, 
we have to remember the account of the mature apostle Paul, who confessed something particular in Romans. You're already in Romans. Just go right over to the seventh chapter. But you know what? How did I do this? Okay, we have Romans. Hmm. Okay. All right. The seventh chapter of Romans, verse 18. And it says, for I, in the New King James Version, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Okay, the Amplified puts it this way. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh my human nature, my worldliness, my sinful capacity. For the willingness to do good is present in me, but the doing of good is not. In other words, he, was, he made it very clear. He was always at war with himself about it, okay? And, you know, we can sit up and act like we're all pious and self-righteous and that's not the case, but, I mean, come on. That is the case, okay? When you have the ice cream calling at you at 2 o'clock in the morning or the chocolate cake that just seems to have your name, you know that you're not supposed to have chocolate cake at 3 o'clock in the morning. There is no reason for it. But it keeps calling you and calling you. And you are at war. Do I answer or do I go to sleep? So you can act like that doesn't happen to you. OK, it happens to me, OK? I'm just saying. There are different things. For some people, it may not be chocolate cake. You know, for some men, it might be the Playboy magazine that they see on the stand, the newsstand when they walk by. I guess they still have newsstands, don't they? Everything now is online, which is even worse because they don't even have to go to the newsstand. Either way, there's something that you are wrestling with, and you, it's, it's a continuous thing. So if we look at it in the Message Bible, it says, but I need something more. For I know the law, but still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Something has gone wrong deep and within me and gets the better of me every time. Now, of course, we exercise our faith, so we believe that these things don't happen to us every time, and that's the good news, okay? But we have to be realistic and understand that it's a battle that we're in. This is January 3rd. Every TV channel that you turn on, unless you're looking at maybe cartoons or something for the children, has something on about, I'm not gonna give credit to all the different companies, but there are all kinds of diet places for you to go to, exercise machines for you to have. Why is it that every new year 
They start out with some kind of weight loss program or something for us to get healthy because they know that from Thanksgiving throughout the holidays, everybody probably ate a little bit more than they wanted to and they make what? A New Year's resolution. How long does that resolution last? People go out and buy all these machines and by June, sometimes they become the best coat racks and hat racks in the room because they're not continuing with that. Okay, they get all of these systems of this food that they think is gonna be great, maybe 30 days after a while, all that stuff. And their cupboard starts calling their name because that packaged food is disgusting and they don't continue with it. But this is real, we can act like it's not. But with me, I'm going to always give you reality. So the point is, we realize this is a war that we have with ourselves with different things. How do we overcome it? By anchoring ourselves and girding ourselves in the word. And that's what allows us to say, OK, it's 3 o'clock. Yes, the chocolate cake would be great but I don't want it on my thigh, so therefore I'm gonna roll over and go to sleep. Or, okay, I bought this machine, I'm going to continue to use it, I'm not going to make it a coat rack, I'm going to be diligent. But you have to continuously keep your focus in the word. You have to, because you're not perfect, and because these things are gonna come at you all the time. So, I mean, I think it, it, all of us can be encouraged once we know that, appreciate it, and move forward with it. Amen? Okay. So, we can remember the account of Paul. I think Paul did a good job of explaining it. Actually, turn to 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 15. And it says... This is a faithful saying, out of the New King James Version, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I love that. Um, and in the Amplified, he puts it, this is a faithful and trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance and approval, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost. Now, he is not in any way, shape, or form trying to say, I'm this horrible person and I remained a horrible person, but he is acknowledging the fact that he needed to be saved. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, sometimes Christians, maybe they didn't have such a horrible life, so maybe they really don't think that they need to be saved. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. I had a person, nobody that you know, nobody from our church, who years ago, but this was even before I was born again, which made it even more funny when I think about it because I didn't even know I wasn't born again, but whatever. This person honestly did believe that he was saved because his whole family was saved. He did not know that God does not have grandchildren. So he, you know, was about to die too. This was the sad part. When I look back on it, it's really sad because he came from this very devout religious family, but he really did believe that he couldn't understand what the big deal was about his salvation. In other words, this man was getting ready to literally transition, but he had a lot of questions, and he really didn't see what was so special about his salvation because he's like, of course I'm saved. Everybody in my family is saved. And, you know, I look back at things like that, and I'm like, Lord, you allow me to see this so that once I came into a better understanding of your word, I, I believe he allowed me to see it so that I could be empathetic to people who must feel that way. Because there are a lot of quote unquote 
believers as we know them to be who may really feel that way. And it's important that we're able to truly be able to share the word from our heart and allow them to see it so that they can get some answers to the questions that they may have. Because some people who are, I'm a perfect example. I thought I was saved when I got married. I really did. I was not. I never saw Romans 10, 9, and 10. I went to a nice little Baptist church that opened up the doors of the church. I filled out the little card, joined the choir, and thought I was saved. I was not. I was literally going straight to hell. Had it not been for the crusade I went on that the apostle had, I would have, I, I never, that's the first time I ever saw Romans 10, 9, and 10 on August 24th, 1984. I will never forget it. And I used to always wonder, how do people know when they were saved? I, you know, people tell you, you know, the old fa people get up and have testimony time. And I used to always wonder, how do they know? Well, I know. <laughs> but I didn't at the time. So it just makes you really, really feel for people. Now, I want to also share 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 19 out of the message. Because it says it a little bit different. It says this. Here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Deep honor and bright glory to the king of all time, one God, immortal, invisible, ever and always. Oh, yes. I'm passing this work on to you, my son Timothy. The prophetic word that was directed to you prepared us for this. All those prayers are coming together now, so you will do this well, fearless in your struggle, keeping a firm grip on your faith and on yourself. After all, this is a fight we're in. And I think that is really special because you know what? We really are in just that, a fight. And I don't think sometimes we always think about it. So these 12 ordinary men <laughs> were just like the rest of us. They were selected from the unworthy and what was considered the unqualified. But make no mistake, some Christians tend to think themselves worthless nobodies. And left to ourselves, that would really be the case. However, worthless nobodies are just the kind of people that God uses because that is all he really has to work with when you think about it. He takes our ordinary and turns it into extraordinary if, here's the qualifier, if we allow him to by making ourselves available. That's really all that we have to do. Now, of course, Satan he does use thoughts, ideas, and suggestions to keep Christians in remembrance of all their shortcomings. His job is to make us feel useless to God and to his kingdom. But the wonderful news is that Christ's choice of the apostles proves the fact that God can use the unworthy and the unqualified. He can use ordinary people just like you, just like me. He did just that with these 12 men who literally turned the world upside down. Let's look at Acts 17. The book of Acts 
the 17th chapter, verses 6 through 7. And the New King James Version, it says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down and have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And if you look at it in the message, it says they broke into Jason's house, thinking that Paul and Silas were there. When they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically, these people are out to destroy the world, and now they've shown up on your doorstep, attacking everything we hold dear. And Jason is hiding them, these traitors in turncoats, who say Jesus is king and Caesar is nothing. When we take the time to think about it, really think about it, God chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek, and really the weak, so that there's never any question about the source of power when their lives change the world. It's not the man, it's the truth of God and the power of God in the man. That is something that's really, really something to think about. So when people remember, you know, say if you were a person who maybe you just weren't timely, you know, I'm not going to say you were horrible. I'm not going to say that you were necessarily on a bar stool somewhere every Friday night, but that could have been your case too. Maybe you just weren't good at work. You know, you came in late, you didn't do all your work nicely. You know, you always found an excuse for why this wasn't done and that wasn't done. And then all of a sudden, they see this difference in you, where you come to work, you're neat, you're on time, you're actually a little bit early, you're doing more than what is asked of you or what's expected of you, and they can't figure out what is this difference? Why is there such a difference? The difference is the power of God that is within you, and you are letting it shine, meaning you are doing what? You are becoming a leader, and that is what? He wants us to do. Amen. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.